Before starting our look at the Gospel text today, I want to point out today, the 27th of September, is actually a couple different saints' days. The 27th of September is Memorial Day of St. Vincent de Paul, known as the Apostle of Charity because of his great work with the poor. And today there is a network of St. Vincent de Paul charity shops that continue to raise money for the relief of the poor. The 27th of September is also the original feast day, although it has been moved recently to the 26th of September, of Saints Cosmos and Damien. Cosmos and Damien are known as physicians living in the late 200s and the first few years of the 300s who never charged for their services. There are multiple stories of their ability to heal people far beyond what medicine of the day would account for and therefore seen as being instruments of God through whom miraculous healings occurred. Cosmos and Damien's reputation for being Christian miracle-working physicians attracted the attention of the Roman governor Lysias under the rule of Emperor Diocletian, who was at the time persecuting the church, and at Lysias' command, Cosmos and Damien were bound hand and foot and cast into the sea to drown. Examples of people who heard the will of God and responded by doing the will of God reaching out to those most in need. I find it interesting that these saints recognized are recognized today because our gospel passage from Matthew chapter 21, beginning in the 23rd verse, is ultimately about whether one does what the Lord has called you to do or not. And St. Vincent de Paul and Saints Cosmos and Damien most certainly did what the Lord called them to do, and serve as worthy examples to follow. Turning now to the Gospel of Matthew, we begin with another attempt of the chief priests and elders to bait Jesus into a trap. It begins, When Jesus entered the temple, the chief priests and elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you? This authority. They ask a question which sounds like they are trying to learn. The question, generously read, might even be seen as they're possibly wanting to begin following Jesus. A less generous reading allows the question to be nothing more than the chief priests and the elders guarding their territory, so to speak, because they ask Jesus the question as he is entering the temple. They're realm, their place of authority. We can see, we can then see it as a why are you here type question, intended only to stop Jesus from speaking inside of the temple. But there is more going on. The timing of this event is shortly after Jesus made his triumphal entry and the people have greeted him with great fanfare. Jesus' reputation as a teacher and as a healer is known everywhere. Jesus' ability to confound the Pharisees, chief priests, and elders has been frustrating the religious authorities and stirring up their anger against him. 
With this background, we know that the question is more than it appears on its surface. We must look at the subtleties of the ensuing conversation to see the meaning of the question. As Shakespeare is reported to have said, we must hear the meaning within the word, or in this case, the words. When Jesus entered the temple, the chief priests and elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? In this question, the chief priests and elders are seeking one of two answers, and they would be happy with either one. The first is that Jesus answers that he has no authority, that he has not been formally trained, that he has not been made a rabbi by the temple leadership, that he has simply taken it upon himself to start teaching an understanding of the faith that, in its end, undercuts the chief priests and the elders' authority. If this is Jesus' answer, they believe that they will proclaim it far and wide, publicly discredit Jesus, destroy his reputation, and disperse his following. The second answer they would accept is that Jesus claims heavenly authority, a claim that God the Father himself appointed Jesus to teach and heal and do all of the other things he did that are propelling him to the peak of popularity. If this is Jesus' answer, they believe that they will be able to try and convict him of blasphemy, and that will publicly discredit Jesus, bringing about the same outcomes as the first answer. Either way, Jesus will be cast aside, and the power of the chief priests and the elders will be restored. At this point, in their minds, crucifixion is not even a consideration. That is an action of the Roman occupiers, and only the Roman authorities can order such a penalty. All the chief priests need is for Jesus to have his feet kicked out from under him so that they can regain control of the people. Now notice the question once again. When Jesus entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? It looks straightforward, open-ended, a question that would allow for a variety of answers, but it really only gave two options. It's either from man or from heaven, from God. How does Jesus then reply? He replies in rabbinical fashion. He answers the question with another question. And even though not rabbis, many people do the same thing today. A question gets posed and the reply is not a direct answer, but instead a question. But what about? Have you considered? How does XYZ figure in? And so on and so forth. Jesus, he makes his reply with the question that is related to the posed question, but he shifts it slightly and creates a challenge for the chief priests and the elders. I will also ask you one question, and if you will tell me the answer, then also I will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, 
From where did it come? From heaven or from man? Notice what Jesus does here. He asked the question about the baptism of John, but Jesus includes in his question two choices, heaven or man. Jesus is, in his question, telling the chief priests and the elders, I know what you are doing. You want one of two answers, heaven or man, and regardless of which I give, you are going to use that answer against me. The chief priests and the elders are now beginning the to feel the jaws of the trap that they tried to set for Jesus closing in on them. They cannot say heaven. If that is the case, they have to admit that John was proclaiming the truth and Jesus is the Messiah. They also cannot say man. If that is the case, the massive following of John, who has now been martyred, well, they're going to rise up against them And the problem that they perceive in Jesus will pale in comparison to what they face when the entire population turns against them. As a result, they answer, we do not know. It is an answer that is not an answer. It is like when a person is testifying before the Congress and the answer would be incriminating. So instead, the person answers, I do not remember to avoid a charge of perjury. The person cannot be proven to be lying, and as long as the truth does not come out elsewhere, they will get away with it. If the truth does come out, they'll say, oh yes, now I remember, and they'll only face the original charge and not the added charge of perjury for lying. This tactic must have been learned from the chief priests and the elders who answer, we don't know. Once again, look at the subtlety of Jesus' response. Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Jesus did not say, I do not know. He, like he did in his question, revealed that he knew that their refusal to answer was a Refusal wasn't an inability. We do not know gets neither will I tell you in response. A gentle twist that says to them loudly, it is not that you do not know, it's that you're refusing to answer. We both know the trap you tried to set for me, and now you are the ones who are firmly in it. From here, Jesus shifts to telling a parable based on what has just happened. A father has two sons, and he gives each one of them a task. The first one openly refused to do it, but then later he reconsiders the task given by his father and goes and does what he was told. The second son immediately accepts the task, says he is on his way to do it, and the moment he steps away, that's the last he thinks of what he was told. The first one appears to be, looks like, a worthless son, a scoundrel who has no respect for his father. The second one looks like the perfect son. Everybody heard his willing acceptance of the task and saw him head off to do the work. He is the good and obedient one. Everyone can see that. But it was the first son who turned around, 
headed back to where the father wanted him to be. It was the second son who, taking advantage of his good reputation, turns and does whatever he pleases without any regard to the actual will of the father. And Jesus, after presenting these two different sons to the chief priests and the elders and allowing all those who were gathered around to hear, asks, which one is the better son? The story is out there. It's just hanging in the air, attracting the attention of all around. And the answer is obvious. The chief priests and the elders, they feel safe answering this question. There's no trap here, or so they think. It was the first son, of course, the one who does the will of the father, not the one who only looks like it and talks like it. With that, the hook is set. Then why did you not believe John? He came in righteousness. You are running around saying that you are doing the will of the father. You make it look as if you're doing the will of the father, but in reality, you are ignoring the will of the Father in order to do whatever it is you want to do. And then he puts the sting in. The prostitutes, the tax collectors, they are the ones that heard John and responded. They started out living only for themselves, rejecting the Father's will for their lives, but they turned back. They repented. They are the first ones. They are the first son who you with your own very mouths have confirmed to be the righteous son. You who think you are so holy because of what you say, but do not do anything that God the Father would have you to do. Be warned. Those repentant prostitutes and tax collectors, those so-called dregs of society, those that you look down your nose at while thanking God that you are not like them, those repentant ones, they are doing the will of God the Father and will enter the kingdom of heaven before you. Now, what are we to make of this passage today? For one, it is all too easy for those who are raised in the faith to only engage the superficial, to learn how to look and talk like a Christian without living like a Christian a real Christian, a disciple of Jesus who seeks to extend his grace and mercy to the world around us. It is too easy to fall into the trap of seeing the modern-day societal outcasts, the, in the words of the passage, prostitutes and tax collectors, as outsiders to be excluded, rather than recognizing that they too are those whom God wishes to save. We run the risk of being so sure of our place in God's kingdom because we fill space in a local parish that we stop examining our lives, seeing our sins that we commit, repenting of them and confessing them to God. And frequently, in the most simplistic following in the way of the second son, we are too quick to make pious commitments and through either no original intention or simply turning to our own preferences without really thinking. We never follow through on what we said we would do, whether it's working on a project, volunteering somewhere, or the immediately made offer to pray for somebody and then not ever doing so. These are but a few examples, and we can think for a while and come up with many more. 
So I ask you to reflect on what you are saying compared to what you are doing. What are you claiming compared to how you are living? And consider the question, am I the first child or the second child? If the first, no matter how far gone in your own direction you may have gone in life, you can turn and do the will of the Father. Repent and ask forgiveness and be the first to enter the kingdom of God. But if the second, it is easy to become the first. Because really you are the first. You just look better in doing it. Do not talk about the will of God. Do not only look as if you are doing the will of God. But really do it. Recognize the reality that each and every one of us is called to repent and ask forgiveness and thereby be allowed to enter the kingdom of God. Amen.